Chapter 20 of The Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Radio Planet by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 20 The Humangs. Thoroughly exhausted by their flight across the boiling seas, the radio man and his two strange companions, the huge ant-man Doggo and the beautiful golden-furred Verking maiden Quiven, wished to land at once, without waiting to ascertain what particular section of Cuppia lay beneath them. But the entire area below appeared to be thickly wooded. Accordingly, the fugitives hovered down to a short distance above the ground, and then just skimmed the treetops at a slow rate of speed, keeping a careful watch for a landing-place. They had not long to wait, for presently they espied a road running beneath the trees. And, after putting on more speed and following this road for a couple of stads, they finally came to a sufficiently large clearing a short distance from the road, to enable them to settle down quietly to the ground. The party quickly disembarked upon the silver-green sward, and the three companions then broke through the bushes to the road, which proved to be of dirt, although well-traveled. Miles remarked, "'This must be some very out-of-the-way part of my country, for practically all of our roads are built of concrete, a material similar to the cement with which I fastened the bricks together in making our furnaces in Vergingi.' Quiven shuddered. "'Please don't remind me of my poor city,' she begged piteously. Then, in a more resigned tone, "'But that is behind us. Let us forget it and face the future.' You were speaking of cement roads?" Yes, Miles replied. The fact that this road is not made of concrete indicates that it is not a main highway, but the fact that it is well worn shows that it is traveled considerably. Let us therefore wait for some passer-by who can tell us where we are. At this point Drago produced a pad and stylus and wrote, Let me in on this. Cabot obligingly transcribed, in Peruvian shorthand, an account of the conversation. Meanwhile the golden girl abstractedly examined the foliage beside the road. While Doggo was reading the manuscript, Quiven called Cabot's attention to the trees and shrubs. "'How different they are from those in Vergingia,' she remarked. "'That is to be expected,' Miles answered. "'For your land and mine are separated by boiling seas, across which no seeds or spores could pass and live. Thus it is surprising that the two continents support even the same general classes of life. Come, I will point out to you some of the more common forms of our flora." He had in mind to show her the red-knobbed grey lichen-tree, and the tartan-bush, the heart-shaped leaves of which are put to so many uses by the cuppians, and the saffra-herb, the roots of which are used for anesthesia and the blue and yellow dandelion-like wildflowers. But although he searched for a hundred paces or so along the road, he was unable to locate a single specimen of these very common bits of Peruvian vegetation. "'It is strange,' he muttered half to himself. "'When I want to show the common plants of Cuppia, I find nothing but unfamiliar plants. And yet I'll bet that if I were to go out in search of rare specimens for my castle garden at Lake Luno, I should find nothing but tartan, saffra, lichen-trees, and blue dandelions." 
The mention of Luno Castle turned his thoughts homeward with a jerk. Here he was at last, after many adventures on the same continent with his Lilla and his baby Q. He had come here to rescue them, if it were not too late, from Yuri the usurper and his whistling bees. Now that he was apparently within reach of his loved ones, he began to worry about their safety a great deal more than ever before. But this fear for Lilla was completely outweighed by a growing fear of Lilla. What would she say to his two allies? Doggo the Ant-Man was a representative of a race which Cabot had vowed to exterminate from the face of Poros. For, as he had repeatedly asserted, there can be no lasting peace on any continent which is inhabited by more than one race of intelligent beings. And Quiven, the golden-furred Verking maiden, would be even more difficult to explain. She was beautiful, even by Cuppian standards. She was more nearly the same race as Miles than was his own wife, Lilla. She and Miles could talk together, unheard by the radio sense of Lilla. In these circumstances it was hardly possible that the Princess Lilla would receive Quiven with open arms, or even be passably decent to her. At this point his reveries were interrupted by Doggo handing him the following note. If we are to await passers-by, do you not think it would be well to return to the plain and secure our rifles, so as to protect ourselves in case the passers-by should prove to be hostile?" Miles nodded his assent, and informed Quiven of their intentions. She, being nearer to the point where they had entered the road, plunged through the bushes at once, and they hastened after her. Just as Miles and Doggo were breaking through the bushes in the wake of the Golden One, they heard an agonized scream ahead. Redoubling their efforts, they reached the clearing in an instant, and beheld a most unexpected sight. Perched upon the airship, like a flock of enormous vultures, were about a dozen huge, bat-winged, pale-green reptiles, each with a wing-spread of fully ten feet. And one of these loathsome creatures held the writhing form of Quiven tight in its claws. Without a moment's thought for his own safety, the intrepid earthman drew the fair Kingian sword which hung at his side, and rushed straight at the beast which held the girl. Doggo followed close behind, clicking his mandibles angrily. But before they could reach the plain, the noisome flock flapped heavily into the air and disappeared over the trees to the northward. Quiven's childish face an agony of despair, and one little furry paw waving a forlorn farewell. The next move was obvious. Miles and Doggo sprang to their places in the aircraft and soared after. It was an easy matter to overtake the clumsy-winged Saurians, but not so easy to decide what to do after reaching them. The reptiles flew so close together their pursuers were afraid to fire on them for fear of hitting Quiven. The girl was as yet apparently unharmed, so the only thing to do seemed to be to follow and watch for some opportunity to effect a rescue. Thus the chase continued for several stads without event. Miles was in an agony for the safety of his little friend, but even his deep concern did not keep his scientific mind from speculating about the pale green dragons which he was following. He had read about such beasts in books on paleontology as a child. These were undoubtedly pterodactyls. He had seen somewhat similar stuffed specimens in the Imperial Museum at Kuana, capital of Cupia. He had encountered swarms of tiny pterosaurs, the size of sparrows, in the caves of Carr. 
but he had been informed by Cuppian scientists that the larger species had long since become extinct on Poros. Whence, then, these captors of Quiven? While engaged thus in speculations, he flew a bit closer to the flock, whereat two of them suddenly turned and simultaneously attacked the plane from both sides. Dago instantly dispatched his assailant with a rifle-shot. But Miles did not dare let go of the control levers, as he was flying too close to the treetops for safety as it was. Accordingly, his assailant got a claw-hold on the side of the fuselage, furled its wings and started to crawl in. But the Earthman steered the machine high into the air, as his companion swung around and fired at the intruder, which promptly let go its hold and, falling with a shriek of pain, crashed through the treetops and disappeared from view. Miles drew a deep breath of relief and once more swooped down on the flock of pterosaurs. But this time he kept at a safe distance from them, and they, warned by the fate of their two comrades, did not attempt any further sallies at the plain. So the pursuit continued. Occasionally, between the green wings, the two in the airship could catch a glimpse of the form of Quiven, held fast in the talons of her captor. She was still alive. She did not seem to be in pain. Once she waved feebly to her friends above. What would those beasts do with her? The question was soon to be answered. But first it was to be succeeded by many other questions, for a large and prosperous-looking city loomed ahead. Its appearance was unfamiliar to Cabot. Strange, he thought, that he knew all the principal settlements of Cuppia. Its architecture was of an unknown type, not like the Pueblo-like piles of exaggerated toy building-blocks affected by the Formians, nor the red-tiled spires and minarets of the Cuppians, but rather a style somewhat resembling classical Greek or Roman. The architecture was immaterial, however, compared with the fact that this was a city of some sort, a city of a high degree of civilization. The beasts were apparently headed straight for it and thus there was every prospect of the inhabitants, presumably Cuppians, rescuing Quiven. Suppose, however, it was a deserted city. Its unfamiliar style and remote location suggested as much. Perhaps this was the long-forgotten court of some Cuppian Jamshid, now kept by lion and lizard, or rather by Woofus and Pterodactyl. This was not so, however, for as Cabot drew nearer, he could clearly see that the buildings were in an excellent state of repair, with not a crumbling ruin among them. No, this was an inhabited city, to which the green dragons were bringing their prey. Could it be that the Cuppian inhabitants kept these creatures as pets, and that this fact was unknown to the scientists at the Cuppian metropolis? Cabot's cogitations were again cut short by his arrival over the city. The dragons made straight for an imposing, centrally located domed edifice, which they entered by one of the upper windows. The plane promptly dropped into a nearby plaza. Making a sign to the Ant-Man to guard the ship, Miles seized a rifle and cartridges, and rushed down a street which led toward the building which the green beasts had entered. On the way he met several pterosaurs, four or five four-legged, slate-colored reptiles ranging in size from that of a small dog to that of a horse, one large snake about thirty feet in length, various sorts of insects, and a few cat-like furry creatures. But not a single cuppian. 
If these were the pets of the city, where were their masters? The strange creatures did not offer to molest him. In fact, they gave way to him with every indication of respect and not a little fear. This seemed to indicate that they were all thoroughly domesticated, so he made no effort to hurt them. At last he arrived at the building which he sought. A wide incline led from the street up to its arched doorway. This smacked of Formia, for the ant-men, before they were driven off the continent, had used ramps everywhere instead of the flight of stairs employed by the Cuppians. Over the door was an inscription in unmistakable Peruvian characters, the palace of the city of Yat. This must be Cuppia, or old Formia, now occupied by the Cuppians, for this was the language of those two races. But then, he reflected, it had also been the written language of the Verkings, far across the boiling seas. Putting an end to his speculations, he rushed up the ramp and entered the building. The splendidly arched and vaulted interior was crowded with the strangest assortment of animals the Earthman had ever set eyes upon. Picture to yourself Frank Buck's circus, the New York Zoo, and the Gruul of Kuana, all turned loose in one hall, and then you wouldn't imagine one half of it. For very few of these assembled beasts bore the slightest resemblance to anything which you, or even Miles Cabot, had ever seen. He paused aghast and surveyed the assemblage. There was not a human or cuppian present, not even an ant-man. At the farther side of the chamber, on a raised platform, there sat, or rather squatted, a gigantic pterosaur, whose wingspread must have been at least twenty feet from tip to tip. This beast, unlike those which had kidnapped Quiven, was pale slate-blue rather than green. His head was square, with a sharp-crested beak, large, circular, lidless eyes, and ear-holes, but no ears. Four legs he had, very much like those of a toad, except that the fifth finger of each hand, the finger which should have been the little finger, extended backward over his hips to a distance of about six feet, and served as the other supporting edge of his leathery wings, which now lay furled at his side. In front of this creature stood Quiven the Golden Flame, guarded by two of the smaller pterodactyls, and seemingly unhurt and unafraid. None of the animals appeared to have noticed Cabot's entrance, so he decided to wait a few moments and size up the situation before doing anything rash. As he watched the scene, a huge snake, some thirty feet in length and at least half a yard in diameter, squirmed on to the platform beside the slate-colored dragon. This snake had two rudimentary legs and two small arms, none of which it used to help its progression. But in one hand it carried what appeared to be a sheet of paper, which it handed with a hiss to the dragon, who hissed in reply, and taking the paper appeared to read it. This called the attention of the Earthman to the fact that each of the Alice in Wonderland animals about him was equipped with a pad and stylus. Occasionally one would scratch something on its pad, and then make two sharp clicks with its mouth, at which a small winged lizard would take the missive and fly with it to some other part of the chamber. Standing very near Miles there was a small and particularly inoffensive-looking furry animal, somewhat resembling a beaver. In Cuppia 
Miles would have assumed that it was some species of math lab, except for its lack of antennae. This looked like a good safe specimen to experiment upon, so he reached for its pad, which, to his great surprise, the creature promptly handed him without demur, together with its stylus. Remembering the inscription above the arched doorway, Miles wrote in Peruvian shorthand, Most excellent king! Miles Cabot, a weary sojourner, craves protection for himself and the Golden One who now stands before you. We are from Cupia and Verkingi, respectively. What country is this? He then folded the paper and clicked twice with his tongue against the roof of his mouth. Instantly a fluttering messenger was at his side. Indicating the platform with a gesture, he handed the note to the little winged reptile, who flew away with it. Miles passed the pad and stylus back to the furry creature from whom he had borrowed it, and then watched the great dragon to whom he had written. This beast received and read the note, while the messenger hovered nigh. Then, steadying a pad against the floor with one front claw, he wrote on it with a stylus held in the other. What he had written he showed to the snake which lay coiled beside him, and upon obtaining a hiss of approval, folded the note and gave it to the little bat who flew back with it to Miles. On the paper, written in unmistakable Peruvian characters, were the words, Welcome to Yat, Miles Cabot. You and your mate are our guests. We know of no country of either Cupia or Verkingi. This is the land of the Wumangs, and I am Bumalela, their king. You have permission to approach the throne." So that explained the strange plants, the dirt roads, the unfamiliar architecture, and the absence of Cupians and Verkings. This must be a third continent intermediate between the other two. Well, the plain was intact, and King Bumalela had assured him that they were guests, so that it was just as well that they had landed on this Azores of the boiling seas. Reassured, the earthman made his way through the strange throng to the foot of the throne where he bowed low before the hideous reptile monarch. Little Quiven, with a cry of glad surprise, rushed over to him and nestled confidingly by his side. Placing one arm protectingly around her, he boldly confronted the winged king. This beast, after some penciled conversation with his serpent adviser, handed Miles a note reading as follows. Our nation was founded many years ago by a creature closely resembling yourself. Therefore, you are an honored guest among us. We have long awaited this day. It is true that you have killed the bodies of two of my subjects, and thereby subjected their souls to a premature birth. The penalty for this would ordinarily be to have a similar death imposed upon your own body. But because of your resemblance to our great originator, Namlup, I shall spare your body. Therefore, I fear that, like him, you may perhaps have no soul, although this deficiency can easily be supplied." Miles read the note and handed it to Quiven, then pointed to the writing materials of the Saurian. Instantly two of the tiny winged messengers brought him a pad and stylus. Thus supplied, he asked the king, "'Great ruler, does your offer of protection include my wings and the black creature who guards them in the public square outside?" "'And how about little me?' asked Quiven, reading over his shoulder. "'He has already pledged his friendship to both of us,' 
replied Miles, handing the note to one of the tiny terrasars. Back came the answer from the king. You and yours shall all be protected. I will now send guards to relieve your guard at the wings, and to summon him into my presence." But the earthman held up one hand in a gesture of protest, and hurriedly wrote, "'Better not, your majesty, unless you wish a fight. I will send a note explaining all. You can then follow it in a few paraparths with your detachment of guards.' To this proposal the huge Saurian assented, so Miles dispatched to Doggo by one of the tiny terrasars a long-written explanation of the situation. A few minutes later, under orders from the reptile king, the flock of green pterodactyls who had been the original captors of Quiven departed with much leathery flapping through one of the windows overhead, and presently one of them returned on foot with Doggo. "'What kind of a gruel is this we have got into?' were the ant-man's first words, as Cabot handed him the pad and stylus. "'The great builder only knows,' his friend replied. "'Anyhow, they claim to possess souls, and have offered us protection.' Doggo looked skeptical. Just then a messenger flitted over with a note from Bumalela, reading, "'The session is at an end. You will please follow me to the royal apartments for a conference.' The king clicked sharply. Instantly all was silence in the huge hall. Solemnly the king clicked three times. In unison the assembled Wumangs clicked back a triple answer. Then all was bustle and confusion as those without wings crowded through the doors, and those with wings departed through the windows in the dome above. Bumalela and his snake adviser, and the three travellers from Verkingi were the only persons, if you can call them all persons, left in the vaulted chamber. Whereupon the snake, gliding ahead, led the way to an anteroom, gorgeously jeweled and draped. There the five reclined on soft tapestries, attended by a swarm of little messengers and engaged in the following written conversation. Due to the speed of Perovian shorthand, the talk progressed practically as rapidly as if it had been spoken although Doggo was somewhat handicapped by not having a stylus which was properly adapted to his claw. "'Who are your companions?' the king asked. So Miles introduced Quiven the Ver-King Maiden, and Doggo the Formian. Bumalela explained that the snake was Queagle Mucky, prime minister of the Wumangs, and wise beyond all his countrymen. "'His soul is brother to my soul although our bodies are unrelated," the king wrote. Miles was much perplexed. "'How is it,' he inquired, "'that such diversified animals as you Wumangs are able to live at peace with each other?' "'It was not so before the days of Namlup,' the huge Terrasar replied. "'But he gave us souls and made us one people. Our bodies may be unrelated, but our souls are the same.' You and your two companions are as unlike as any of us. Perhaps the three of you have a common type of soul." Miles was even more perplexed. "'Who was Namlup?' he asked. "'And what means all this talk of souls?' End of chapter 20